0: Nobody asked for another podcast, so here you go, this is yet
1: another infra podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome to our eighth episode of yet another infra podcast. I'm your host, Vitali Gorin, co-founder and CEO of Ferris AI. We're lucky to be joined today by Jamin Bull, partner at the Limiter Capital, Steve Kaman, research analyst at King Alpha, and Alex Klemmer from Dev. Some of the topics we'll be covering include who is the fourth public cloud provider and why do they have a chance? And a fascinating deep dive into the relationship between venture capitalists, their investors, and the founders in this economy. Hope you enjoy. Steve, you spent many days tracking the public cloud market, and it seems that everyone thinks that the market had been settled around Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. But you think that there is a real contender in the space. Can you tell us who that contender is and why do they have a chance to challenge the incumbents? Yeah, and the
0: company's cloud player. in full disclosure, I own a ridiculously dangerously large quantity of it personally, which has been very painful for the last year, felt good the year before. So I do believe CloudFlare, and they've said themselves that they're building a fourth cloud, and I think they are building a fourth cloud. In fact, I think it's already there if you see it. Maybe to answer that more directly, if you'd asked me four years ago, I would have told you that... Amazon, Microsoft, and Google own this market. They have it completely locked up. There's no incremental space. We're done. And what I'd say more than anything is they found what was, in retrospect, an obvious, completely unexplored and very massive market space in sort of the network sea that surrounds the clouds, if you think of them as continents. And they dominated, mostly because no one else thought to build there. There are some really promising startups out there that are doing some really interesting stuff. I can talk about them, but right now Cloudflare is in the position where AWS was a few years ago, which is not only do they dominate the market, they're actually defining the market. I'm the first to tell you, thinking I was a cloud expert, I simply didn't think it existed four years ago.
2: So Alex, I would love to hear your thoughts as well. I actually have a question, which is, I'd be curious to hear what properties of Cloudflare distinguish it relative to the other vendors in the space of new infrastructure products that is coming up that are either going to be public or are already public. So it seems to me that there are actually a lot of infrastructure companies that are going to be public companies. So there's like a bunch of search companies like Algolia is probably going to be public at some point. I'm guessing Sourcegraph, if they continue, at least as they were, as well as they were doing a couple of years ago, is probably going to be public. Temporal, I think, has a real shot at being public. And it seems to me that it actually might be the case that there are a bunch of companies in the infrastructure space that are going to be public. And I'm curious, like, why is Cloudflare different from a Temporal or an Algolia or something? Is it just that there's like a horizontal aspect to the business? To be honest, I've never thought of Cloudflare in the context of those
0: companies. But what I see is Cloudflare is building and where I would compare it more to an AWS is a general purpose compute platform. We offer storage, we offer compute, and we offer network. And it's at that level they're building not at the application level, which is where you see all the announcements. What they're really trying to build is a, hey, come build on us model in the same way that an AWS did. And so in that, I would see more of the competitors being like a fly.io and Dino. And uh, there's one other that name is slipping out of my head. And in that context, what I'd say is Cloudflare is simply so much further ahead. Admittedly, there's also the dying donkeys of Akamai and Fastly that we can leave those aside. We're trying to build the same thing. Akamai has been trying to build the same thing for 20 years, but That kind of general purpose, network centric, first server you hit platform is where I think the value lies. And so that's where I would place them. And in that context, Cloudflare simply just has scale and actually running code on it in a way that none of those other
2: players have in either the size or the breadth. I guess my question is really about like, partially about what the nature of being a cloud provider is. And to me being the distinguishing characteristic of infrastructure platform is that you have consistent tools for driving consumption on the underlying platform. When you think of like public clouds that we think of like mostly consumption-based pricing and ways to drive consumption to the underlying platform. So you think about AWS, it's 70 or 80% of their business is like not actually direct EC2 or S3 consumption, probably I'm guessing. Maybe that's wrong, but it's like a large amount of it is consumption driven from higher level abstractions that sit on top of the platform. And The thing that I think is interesting about the public cloud market is that there's more than one way to drive consumption to the underlying platform. And if you go look at Google Cloud, I think Google Cloud looks a lot more like Snowflake to me, where you have a fairly limited number of higher level services that drive consumption to the underlying compute, but you have a lot of consumption of BigQuery. And so you look at something like Snowflake. Snowflake has very similar characteristics, but it isn't like a general purpose compute offering, right? Like it's a data warehouse. And I think superficially, it seems like it does have a real shot of competing head-to-head against the big two, like Azure and AWS. But what Snowflake and BigQuery prove is that there are other ways to have a consistent infrastructure platform that you drive a lot of consumption to. And my question is, in the future, are we going to see other platforms like Temporal or something where there is a massive amount of consumption driven to the underlying platform but maybe not as horizontal an offering. I I guess I'm wondering, like, is Cloudflare really particularly unique in that sense? Yeah, and I think we come
0: from different premises and you might be right. and I might be right. It's blind men and the elephant. I ended up covering AWS and GCP and all those guys back when nobody else cared about them. They started with EC2 and S3 and my understanding is still that 70, 80% of the business is just playing vanilla EC2 and S3 and they're desperately trying to sell you the higher value added services like redshift and aurora and databases and kinesis and all this stuff and they're seeing some progress on that but right now there's a whole lot of we'll just buy your plane vanilla compute and or storage and use it ourselves so i see them coming up from that space and growing up from that and then the applications came second if that's the narrative i'm applying then what i'm seeing is a similar ramp with the cloud and i don't really believe that it because Amazon didn't launch a database and then sell cloud. They launched cloud and sold database. And so I think if you're coming from the bottom up, what you're then doing is create a general purpose infrastructure platform. And then you sell from there and you hope essentially that eventually other people's creativity on building on it, Snowflake being a really good example. And the EC2 guys and S3 guys love Snowflake. Okay, Redshift doesn't like Snowflake. But Amazon doesn't care. They're making great money on the EC2 and S3 side. I think that's more the model that I'm seeing evolve here. And that's what I would consider a cloud, but we could have different definitions. Jim,
3: and I would love to hear your thoughts as well on the topic. I would say at a high level, well, one thing that I'm pretty excited about is seeing a new S3 EC2 emerge, right? We have the public cloud. I think of those as the centralized version of the S3 and EC2, where the cloud flares or flyings of the world, right? Are more of that that distributed cloud, right? The distributed S3 and, and EC2. Obviously, cloud players much further ahead in that. But why I get excited about that is that when we think about edge, why it's better, generally you think of performance and then the natural question is, okay, what situations matter where you really need that latency or it really matters? And I think what we're starting to see is given the choice, why wouldn't you want something that's more performant, that's closer to the end users and all of that? I'd say the interesting thing that I see with Cloudflare's approach, it reminds me a lot of kind of the AWS approach, which is the kind of the tool for many, right? And I would say the knock or the benefit on Cloudflare is that it's much more tied to the Java ecosystem and the Java runtimes. And if you want to build with workers or with their edge functionalities, you kind of have to build within their constraints. And what they'll say is the constraints that we built serve kind of 80% of the market. And it's the long tail and the vast majority of use cases of what you'd want to do, you can do with us. Someone like a fly would say, okay, what about anything you can put in a container? What if you want to run some TensorFlow, PyTorch, computational heavy workload? Like that's hard to do in something like Cloudflare. So what gets me excited is that you have solutions like Cloudflare who are giving tools to developers to build for the masses. And then you have cutting edge players building more of that specialized functionality that might sound niche today, but is something that will grow. So I'd say overall, I'm excited about the possibility of more of an edge S3 and EC2, like whatever shape or form that I, I will violently agree with that and then
0: expand it because I think this is where the cloud market itself as an ecosystem is evolving in some really interesting ways let's just take aws so i can just talk about one thing aws must serve all workloads so they in a weird way have an obligation of service to anything you bring to aws they have something that they will offer to serve it to your point Jamin, if you're one step forward in the network and you could be a cloudflare you could be a fly.io you could be one ist you can then choose to serve a subset And this is where, if you think about a cream skimming milk model, the real problem isn't taking all the cream, it's what do you do with all the skim milk? So I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna look at this packet, I'm gonna decide whether I wanna do something with it, I'm gonna store it, I'm gonna process it, I'm gonna do something with it, or eh, too hard, not my thing, not specialized for it, I'll optimize for it, boom, do it at AWS. And the beauty of it, and I don't wanna, because AWS is gonna make good money off of that offer as well, is what I don't have to do as the second actor in this market is serve all workloads. AWS back in the day really had to replicate that core on-premise data center and they had to do everything. Cloudflare can optimize around JavaScript. To your point, other people can say, look, I can run Python very well at the edge and Cloudflare can say, hey dude, don't do Python, that's fine. And you can start to see that model evolving. The key thing is as those, because those markets are individually fairly large chunks, there's a pretty solid business, particularly if you wanna look at the web presence space. And then as the whole thing evolves as an ecosystem, there's kind of space for everyone to eat off. That makes
1: sense. Steve, we have to talk, I feel, about the kind of Achilles heel of AWS that really I feel Cloudflare is attacking. And those are the outrageous egress fees. And I think they, they did a very smart job on like really taking the one thing that everyone complains about and probably make a compelling case about why should you use Cloudflare instead of AWS? Can you talk more about that?
0: Yeah. And it's funny because when I talk to investors, which I do, because that's what I am, they all look at the kind of published per gigabit pricing in Cloudflare and R2 is 35% cheaper than S3. And that's about as far as they get. To your point, if you talk to anyone who actually runs a website, they could care less about the per gig price. What they care about is egress fees because that as the transit of data in and out of AWS, or more importantly, and Corey Quinn had a brilliant graphic on this recently of just all the ways that AWS will charge you a network transfer fee, even as you move around within the AWS ecosystem. And this is just as true. Google charges network transfer fees. All these players charge network transfer fees. And so as you move data around, because they have so much data, they're trying to damp all that movement around, that all adds up. Cloudflare R2 has zero egress fees, zero transfer fees. And in theory, at least, especially once they get it fully stood up, it operates globally. So you look at that and you say, great, I'm paying a per gig price and that's it. Whereas with an AWS, you're first of all playing some pretty egregious fees for every time you move the data. And secondly, it's a non-predictable number because I don't know until my traffic comes in how much that number is going to be. One company I know of does AI models. It's a decent sized download. It's a 70 cent tax every time customer does a download. And if you're thinking on a retail context, 70 cents is meaningful gross margin, 70 cents per transaction bang. More importantly, if I take that out, I've transformed my economics in some really profound ways. So I do think there's an offer there. I also think the other mistake I think people are making is assuming that I need to adopt workers in order to adopt R2. And workers is Cloudflare's compute platform. And this wasn't true of Amazon. People just dump stuff on S3 without adopting EC2 back in the day. It's equally gonna be just as true, which is I can dump stuff into R2 without adopting workers or without paying any attention to workers. I'm just using it as a transparent, low cost, no egressy option relative to S3. And then I will make one final point and then I will shut up. I think the other mistake that people are making and the last Cloudflare call had, this AI company shows up out of nowhere and is now their largest R2 customer. And this was just as true for AWS is, as a cloud player, you have no control over what customer is going to show up and how much data they're going to dump into you. Your only job is to buy more hard drives. Now, that's bad if you don't get awareness, don't get demand. But the flip side of that is no salesman needs to go out and shake the trees to get the next incremental petabyte to show up. Once you're on and that engine takes off on its own, and particularly back in the early days of AWS, S3 just exploded because, wow, cheap storage and more importantly, on-demand storage. And that was just a really valuable, valuable proposition when the guy who's running the data centers, yeah, I can get you more disk space in six months, drop me a call. So put that all together, there's this weird opportunity for a jailbreak. We'll see if it happens this year or next. But that's the dynamic you're seeing underneath in Cloudflare that doesn't have much to do with the software, the
2: application. It's super low layer, super infrastructure. So Steve, do you think that the sort of mismatch in price on egress is a structural advantage for anybody trying to enter the cloud market? And do you think this is a persistent enough advantage that Cloudflare will be here uh, until they take a significant amount of market share? Or do you think this is something Amazon can actually correct for at some point?
0: Yeah, and here I, have, I am making this up and I don't even play an engineer on TV. So take this for some guy just guessing. But my belief is that those egress fees, because notice they're charged by all the clouds and yeah. Google last year actually put in this really unpopular interregion transfer charge, which they had not previously charged. I think that's more of a demand management function than it is a rapacious pricing function. And so to answer the question the other way is someday out there when R2 is holding exabytes of data, I think Cloudflare will have to figure out a way to make sure that R2 doesn't get so big that they also don't have to charge egress fees. The good news is exabytes of data is billions in revenue. And so I'm not so worried about that, but I do believe that over time R2 ends up a relatively premium hot storage option. And then the colder storage, which is where the data volumes lie and where you really need to tamp things down. That's where I think you'll start to see that continue to stay in the cloud. So there's plenty of room for everybody here. You want to think about that egress fee as like a toll on a bridge. I always use GW Bridge. Like if there's too many cars in Manhattan, I raise the tolls on the GW Bridge. Okay, maybe I'm doing it because New Jersey is greedy or the port authority is greedy. But realistically, I'm also doing it as a traffic control function on how many cars can fit Manhattan at a given time. And I believe, with no evidence, that's what the egress fees really
2: are. So I think it's interesting because I think the way that Amazon prices primitives very much locks it, it seems to me, into a specific way of doing business. Because if you change the pricing of something like S3 or EC2 at its core, you're changing the fundamentals of the businesses that sit on top of it, which in Amazon's case totally is right. a very large number of businesses. For me, the questions for Cloudflare is like, is their strategy of pricing these primitives something that is fundamentally long-term viable for them? And if it is, then I think they have a real shot of selling into the market in a slightly different way and capturing a bunch of share in that market. I think thinking about the way that you and Jamin are talking about this, I think one of the things that's interesting is the way that you describe the public cloud offerings and what is exciting to you makes it seem like you are excited about cloud as index on the business of the internet. And I think there's another view which is kind of interesting to consider which is if you are building a platform like AWS and you're building it like an index fund on the internet basically i think it opens up actually other possibilities other places where you can do arbitrage right so if you think about something like cloudwatch cloudwatch is definitely a billion dollar business and i think it's really interesting cuz my experience Working on Azure is that if you go to Azure and you go talk to the teams that are doing stuff like where there's direct competitor like Lambda or something like Azure Functions versus Lambda, they view their competition not as like point SaaS competitors, they view it as the equivalent offering inside AWS. So like the equivalent VM offerings in EC2. And I think this structurally sets them up to undercapitalize on parts of the cloud that could be really valuable. And I think part of this is the reason why Redshift never ended up being Snowflake. There's like architectural reasons as well. But the fact that if you're doing like five to $10 billion of business, and you don't think that Datadog is your direct competition. You think that Azure's version of CloudWatch is your direct competition. Then it is way harder for you to fully capitalize on that market in the same way that Datadog is. Another way of viewing competition in the space is that there's a different kind of infrastructure company that is not an index fund, which is building... Parts of the cloud, which are themselves extremely valuable, like Datadog and Snowflake, and are efficient at driving consumption on that underlying platform. And the thing that I'm most excited about when I hear us talk about this stuff is all of those solutions where people are building things that the cloud structurally cannot capitalize on because they have set up their organization to respond to different systems. I think I can cut to the chase in terms of where,
0: because I actually agree with everything you said, but I would put that up at kind of the SaaS layer. Snowflakes of the world and the cloud watch of the world and the data dogs of the world where I'm selling you an application that runs on the cloud. And so where I get excited is a big SaaS company, 20 billion in revenue. There are very few SaaS companies that have 20 billion in revenue. The cloud storage market is probably 30 billion right now. And the gross margins there are SaaS like. The big three clouds are 155 billion. They're probably going to 1.5 trillion. And this is what's terrifying about a Cloudflare. and look at, we don't have gross margins for AWS, but the operating margins for this thing are really healthy. 30% range, okay, it's a little lower lately. The scary thing about that model is I am looking at, okay, I'm off by 30%. I'm looking at a trillion in revenues at a 30% operating margin. I don't care how big your SaaS opera is, you're just a drop in the bucket. And so the total profit stream down there is insane. And then the second point that sort of flows on from there, and this is by kind of a returning to the IBM mainframe model, is then look at AWS as an indicator here. Proprietary chips, proprietary hard drives, proprietary network. The whole model is centralizing into something that only exists within AWS. And as they get better and better, the old enterprise on-premise model doesn't get better at the same rate. And so not only do I have a trillion dollar market, I have a very limited number of players, each sucking a really scary amount of EBITDA out of that thing. And the value creation opportunity is very large. And my point then to pull back to Cloudflare, and this is where I think we're just, is I'm looking at the bottom up, which is, I think Cloudflare's applications are neat, but I see them largely as concept demonstrations of what the platform can do. What I'm waiting for is for other people to figure out what that platform can do and build on it, very much like AWS app. How many companies exist because AWS exists? And when that ecosystem starts getting going, I think the applications that cloud players selling right now will just become rounding error in the context of the underlying
1: infrastructure. So we'll see. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. So let's actually switch gears from the large cloud players to maybe a little bit smaller stars, which is an area, Gemin that you play in. So it's great to have you here with us, and I want to follow up on a conversation that you and I had a couple of weeks ago. There seems to be a lot of confusion in the kind of startup market today around valuations, founders, VCs, LPs, everything really. So some people claim that the investment market is dead. Some people claim there's more dry powder than ever before. So for people who are listening and not very well versed in the intricacies of venture capital, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics between investors, meaning VCs and their own investor, the limited partners, and how the recent market correction affected those relationships?
3: Yeah. And I think looking at Datadog, and there's a little bit of selection bias here because they're one of the great ones. You know, There were private rounds in that business that call it like 10, 15, 20 times ARR. And in the peak of COVID, Right. That thing was trading at 60, 70 times ARR. So you basically got three to 4X return on your investment for free just from multiple expansion. But what we're seeing right now is the exact opposite of that. If you invested in a business at 100X ARR, but you want to exit at 10X ARR, the same tailwind of multiple expansion that drove a lot of BC returns, now is the opposite. Just some rough math here, and it's very rough. But if you invest in 100X AR of a somewhat skilled company and you wanna exit a 10X AR, that means you probably have to grow the business 12 times, including dilution, just to break even on your initial investment. And if you wanna get that kind of three to five X, you probably have to 50 to 60 X your growth. And if you want to do that in a reasonable time frame, you're probably cagering top line over hundred percent a year for five to eight years, right? So it's the math on how to really drive valuations. Really what I think people are realizing is only the truly special companies can do that. And so what you have right now is a lot of companies who are currently sitting on really high valuations, even after they've grown a year after the round and so, you have this dead zone where a lot of, and again, sorry, I should have contextualized this. A lot of my time is at that series B, C stage, as opposed to super early seed venture. So that's where a lot of this context is coming from. But the reality is if you see a company sitting on 40, 50X multiple with that's what the last round post was, you better believe it's a very special company. If you're going to exit the business with 80% multiple, traction. And so you have a lot of folks on the sideline realizing and saying, it's hard to make the math work. The math can really only work for the special companies. So that's kind of like the making money. But then there's the other, just more of the human element of like, how can we be a good partner to our LPs? And so if we think about our right? Maybe they allocate, take a classic endowment or pension fund, maybe 20% of their capital is in a venture asset class. Maybe 20% is in private equity or buyout. Maybe 20% is public markets, 20% in credit, whatever it is. I'm making up those numbers, but it's a basket of assets with venture being one of them. The reality is that a lot of those groups are hurting now, right? They've lost a lot of money over the last kind of call it 18 months, like most folks have, and they're hurting a little bit. Some might even be like distressed. And so how LP commitments work to venture capital funds is an LP might say to us, hey, we're going to invest $20 million in Altima." What that doesn't mean is that they're wiring us $20 million when we close our fund, like a startup would have, right? We invest in a series B, so we wire all of that money up front. How it works for venture capital commitments is that LP has committed 20 million to us and we will call that capital. We will ask them for that money over the life cycle of our fund. So maybe we invest 10% of our fund into a startup. We will then go call 10% of everyone's commitment to fund that single investment. So the LP who gave us $20 million, we will go say, we're going to call 10% of the capital to make this investment. Can you wire us 2 million? And so the point of this being, they will fund us on a timeline. All LPs traditionally will build a cash flow model that says, okay, I expect all of my capital to be called over a three-year period, right? So you build a cash flow model that gives you three years of runway to fund that commitment. What happened over the craziness of 2020, 2021 is funds compressed their deployment period. And so an LP was planning to deploy over a three-year period, but instead it was all called at a one-year period, all of a sudden you're in a cash crunch. And so that has broadly happened where a lot of LPs are in a cash crunch because funds were called very quickly at the same time as the other asset class that, that they've invested in have gone down and they're kind of hurting, right? And so the last thing that we wanna do as a good partner to our LPs is say, you know what? You committed that money to us, right? We know you're hurting, but guess what? We're gonna put a gun to your head and say, we haven't invested, we wanna go make. It's at hundred times ARR. You need to give us the money because you're contractually obligated to. That just creates tension and friction. What we wanna do is be good partners to our LPs and say, how are you guys doing? How are you thinking about your cash flows and your capital allocation, like how can we be good partners to you in a time where you might be distressed? And I don't use that, the distressed word lightly, like I'd say in any down market, you even have a pickup in LP secondaries. You you hear a lot about company secondaries, but LP secondaries are where an LP says, I need cash. I need to sell my interest in a venture fund to another LP. And similar to secondaries and companies, it's at a discount right? So if I invested $20 million in Altimeter, I need the cash now. I might go sell that stake for 10 million bucks to another LP just so I can get the cash to fund my other commitments. But the broad takeaway is we want to be good partners to our LPs, right? We want to understand how they're doing in this moment. And what that generally means is the bar for future investments is higher because the pain is a little bit more acute for the incremental capital call to our LPs. And so all it really does is raises the bar in a time when the private valuations still haven't really corrected and you have to bake in multiple compression to an exit multiple you're applying on any given investment, which means again, like only the special companies will really generate the return we'd like to return when you bake in this multiple compression to exit.
2: So I think this idea of communicating to your LPs about what their constraints are and like trying to proactively be a good partner is a really interesting framing. I think it's interesting that you never hear entrepreneurs talk about like, how do you be a good partner to the people that are giving you money, which is like the investors like you. And I'd be curious to hear for, from the entrepreneur's perspective, you have this, a change in these, the way that these capital markets work seems to imply like a change and sometimes probably a very drastic change in the operating characteristics of the businesses. And I guess beyond the usual aphorisms that you should like cut, spend and be more efficient in your growth. I'm curious to hear like, what are the things that you would expect from entrepreneurs? What are the ways in which you expect those businesses to change
3: in order for them to be good partners to you? Yeah, it's a good question. I think at the core, it all comes down to transparency, right? Like we want to have a very transparent relationship with our LPs and we want to have a very transparent relationship with the founders that we partner with. And so I think You have a lot of businesses over the last few years that again what i was saying earlier were growing quickly looked great but the reality is there was a high burn profile behind them and that was okay because the capital markets were plentiful and you could burn a lot because you could raise a lot right and so now as that dynamic has shifted as it becomes harder to raise it's not just a growth at all costs it has to be efficient growth and so i would say the only thing we really ask for with our founders is let's just have a super intellectually honest relationship about where we are as a business. If we're like pre-product market fit, what's it going to take to get there? Do we feel more confident, less confident? How are we all doing? You know, it's more about, I think, just the transparency. And some founders, I think, feel pressure to only share good news or only share positive updates because we want to make our investors happy. And I think the reality is we think longer term than that. It's like, we don't need short-term updates. So let's think about how we need to optimize the business over a five to 10 year arc. And a lot of the times that means sharing a lot of bad news and really maybe only spending time on the bad news and making a lot of hard decisions. Because I think look like in the venture ecosystem as well, it became hard to be the other voice in the room. The voice that said maybe the contrarian things or the hard things it became such a founder-friendly world, whereas an investor, you never wanted to go against the grain and say, hey guys, you know, I think things aren't working. Like you need to think differently. It's more of being a cheerleader versus a partner. And so in the same way, like we want to be the hard voice in the room or say the things that might not be easy to say, you know, we also want our founders to tell us, be proactive about that so that you don't really have to pry for it or ask for it, but it feels like everyone kind of is on the same page with the same set of information.
2: Yeah, I think it, it does basically answer the question of when you've, you view relationships with LPs as fundamentally a partnership, you view relationships with
3: entrepreneurs as fundamentally a partnership. And I think it's really interesting to contrast the two. There, one other thing too is I think what is a lot of companies have a lot of cash. They have four or five years of And I would say the conversation that we want to have with all of our companies is just because we have that cash doesn't mean we need to spend it. Right, Just because we as investors have that cash from our LPs doesn't mean we need to invest it. It's why you see companies like Microsoft, who's generating tens of billions of gap net income, talking about laying off 10,000 people or reducing their headcount by 10,000 people. Right, Just because we have the cash doesn't mean we need to spend it. And so for companies, what we want to believe and what we really want to align on is just because you have three, four or five years of runway doesn't mean it needs to be spent inefficiently working on four or five different products. It's like, let's align on what's mission critical. What is the first, second, and third most important goals that we have as a business for this year, whether that's on product, whether it's on market, whether it's on something else. And let's make sure that we are focusing on our capital expenditures on those three things. Because like right now, that's all that matters. Let's be essentialists. Let's focus on the few things that matter. Let's not go too broad. I'll pitch at a thought, which is If you change the words, everything you said pretty much applies to public
0: markets as well. What I would summarize is there's all these weird structural constraints to investing at a time like this when to get onto the main point. Objectively, you and I know it's a phenomenal time to be putting money to work. But yet, because of the way the money machine is structured exactly at the time when you should be out there throwing money in at low valuations and picking up all these things, there are all sorts of people pulling money away from you and everybody's talking about cost cutting. And this is the irony of how all of these markets were, is they're inherently pro-cyclical. And so you can stand up and say, we want to be counter-cyclical, but the world literally will not structure itself to allow you to do that. The only other point I'd make, and it, it really burns my brain, is the valuations, to your point, yeah, we're trading at 60X revenues, and this is insane, and the valuations are nuts. If, and I could well be wrong, but if we're looking at $150 billion industry that's going to 1.5 trillion, all of those valuations are going to look stupid cheap. And the valuations today are going to look extra double super stupid cheap. This is where it's intensely frustrating. And it's a little like buying Amazon after the dot-com bust is if you shift out your timeframe a little bit, all those valuations look perfectly legitimate. If you happen to accept for going to $1.5 trillion cloud industry, which may be completely wrong, but you can sense the intense frustration of what's your timeframe here and how patient are you? Then if you apply that and look at let's say last year to now, what really changed is not the companies. They haven't really changed at all what's changed is people's patience and willingness to wait and that's a purely human phenomenon and then at some point they'll wake up raise their horizons whoosh the valuations have come back and you'll stand around saying why didn't i put money to work and to everything you just said you'll say because all my lps are pulling money all over the place and nobody will give me any money and i blew it all two years ago and now i don't have any and this is what creates these kind of structural positive public
1: markets yeah well, let me just add a little bit on steve's point One of the things that you did with the math, you say with multiple compression, it means that companies now have to grow even faster at a ridiculous rate. But what we hear from investors is saying, actually, you need now to manage your burn. You need to be more responsible and things like that. So how these two points align where on one, you have to now meet your valuation, but on the other hand, everyone asks companies to become more frugal. Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say
3: the right way to approach that question from the investor isn't to go to companies you have already invested in and say, Hey, you need to grow X, Y, Z because I need to make money. That is, I think, very unhealthy. I was more framing it from the concept of incremental investments where we are, as investors are saying, I could pay X for the business. But that means if I want to generate the return that I would like to ultimately deliver to my investors, you need to grow Y. And the reality is now there's a mismatch there because it's really hard to grow Y when you're investing at X multiple. And so the conversation generally, and this is why I think there's a little bit of kind of a dead zone for kind of certain stages in the venture market is because where that valuation makes sense is oftentimes lower than where companies have raised their last route right? And so no company wants to take a down round when they have three, four, five years of cash. Why would they? You'll just wait, hopefully grow into that multiple, exceed it, and then raise the next round. For companies that do need the cash, that don't have the luxury of, right, three, four, five years of runway, it often leads to an interesting conversation. Companies will probably have two options, right? Raise at a flat round or an up round with potentially some underlying structure. And by structure, I just mean more preferential terms to the investors, or raise a clean round without that structure at a down round. And what I will always say is almost in every scenario, that clean down round is the better option. The structure always ends, or in most cases, right, ends up hurting founders and investors more than it helps them, even though it does give them that kind of like headline valuation to talk about. But I think about it like like the public markets, right? Like in the public market, You can be beating your plan, executing very well, building great products that customers love. And there are just things that are out of your control that drive your valuation, right? We saw that over the last 12, 18 months as it relates to interest rate. Because interest rates went up, valuations went way down and companies could still be performing well, but there was these factors outside of their control that drove their valuation. The reality is it's no different for private companies. You just don't get to mark them to market on a daily basis, right? The private company valuations are going up and they're going like this just like public market valuations are, but you just don't see it because they're not liquid investments. So what we will tell our entrepreneurs is, hey, focus on the things that you can control, which is building great products that customers love. And at the end of the day, the markets will dictate what that valuation is, but there's no point in trying to optimize it or gamify it with kind of structure or tricks because building the most enduring business generally means just, Raise at clean terms at the valuation the market dictates and focus on building great products and then in times like this, where markets are pushing valuations down, a lot of it then falls back onto founders and management teams to communicate appropriately to their employees, like, look like just because we raised the down round doesn't mean the business is failing, doesn't mean the business isn't working. Let's focus on what matters, which is that kind of five to ten year arc, and how can we create and drive value over that time period? and I know that's It probably is like, what is this VC on his high horse saying that? It's like, why don't you live in the trenches with us? It's way harder to do that. There are a lot of implications around morale and culture and that education that is hard about raising a down round. But I'd almost always say that down round was better in the long run than a flatter up round with structure. It just might not appear that way in the short term.
2: So for entrepreneurs, though, I do think there is an implication to what you're saying, which is that although you don't want to try and tune every aspect of your company to track Market conditions, you do have to change operating characteristics of the business, right? If you've focused your go to market and sales force, right, on a specific set of market conditions, like where there's zero interest rates, and that condition falls out from under you, you are going to probably have to change that business. And I think the practical advice that I'd love to hear is here's is what we're seeing in the market, and here's what we think we should consider when changing the operating characteristics of the business. I think you're seeing that across industry, but it's hard to get like really good, high quality advice that's calibrated because it's it seems like there are a lot of opinions and it's hard to sift through all of them.
1: Let me jump in first with some context that maybe some entrepreneurs that maybe are not old enough to remember that there used to be a time where companies would go public in four years. By the way, the reason why the vesting cycle in companies is four years is because that is how long it would take companies to go public on average. So companies like Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, like I think combined maybe raised like a $200 million together before they went public. Now we have companies who raise probably like billions of dollars. And I'm not just talking about Stripe before they go public. And that is the anomaly that is not necessary. Like you can actually create great companies like the ones I just mentioned with raising a little bit less cash or a lot less cash and actually creating a great sustainable business. And I think that is where maybe we lost the plot a little bit.
3: Yeah. I think and Alex, I think that all makes a ton of sense. And Alex, I think if I have to break it down to what fundamentally matters most over the long, if you want to create value? It is how can we drive free cash flow per share? Like, that is like the iron law. If you are driving free cash flow per share, if that number is going up, like, you will be worth more. That is what matters. Now, the balance in the short term, if you're operating in a market where, let's say, you have four competitors, all those competitors raise a bunch of money, start hiring a bunch of people, spending a ton on marketing, and kind of like flooding and confusing the market, it's hard not to. Do that as well because you don't want to lose market share, right, or speed c- ground to your competitors. And so, it's a natural thing to do when capital is cheap to c- follow that suit. I think what gets me really excited about the next kind of two years is that the reality is we will really start to see what businesses were built on cheap growth with maybe like an unstable product foundation that were able to compete because they could build and manage these massive sales force and be a sales driven culture versus a product driven culture. Like for those businesses, it's going to be much harder because you can't now just grow really inefficiently. And again, if you don't have the leading product, you try to be efficient, like you're, (laughs) if that will really hurt your growth. And for those companies, it will be harder to raise. I think people look at Uber and Lyft, right? Like Lyft can compete when capital is really cheap and you can offer all these great discounts, but like now it's time to say, okay, who actually has a good business? And if you don't have a good business, it's, you don't have moats, you don't have all that. It's pretty tough. So I think about the next two years as call like the great separation, where we're really going to see, hey, who's for real, Who's actually built a great product versus who is faking it till they made it, never got the chance to make it because capital wasn't as cheap anymore.
0: Natalia, I actually wanted to go back to what you were saying. And from the public markets perspective, the dynamic that I would put it is, and I'm, we're all pretty pissed off about it, is back in the good old days, you'd run for four years, raise a couple hundred million, and then we'd IPO and pick up the capital to grow from there. And that would allow us to get in on the ground floor. Now for a variety of regulatory changes, some of which are pretty sketchy, we can keep these things private for much longer because everyone saw, wait a minute, we're IPOing it here and then we're losing all that fat return. So now what you're seeing is almost the opposite, which is like Stripe, which has been private for what, 10 years now, I think, is all these companies are essentially going well past what would have been an IPO stage. And a bunch of people are privatizing the gains on that before anybody out here in boring old public markets land gets a shot at it. And now we have funds, big public market funds, that can do these investments before they go public. There's a whole layer of sort of those last couple of rounds where I don't know ethically you look at it and you're like, this is pretty sketchy, guys, or this should have IPO'd several years ago. So it's a little depressing. The only other thought I would offer, John, on your point on down rounds, is. The other reason to do a down round with clean numbers is your next raise. The guy's going to walk in and if your cap table is a hairball of this and that and all over the place, the next raise gets harder and the next raise gets harder and the next raise gets harder. So the only offer I'd say is that one of the reasons to just keep it clean, even if it's a down round is this round will hurt, but your next round will be easier. So unless you think you can go public without that X round, which we would love to see it's think about that as a, at least you're not dragging that mess with you because a lot of people that actually starts to become a real problem down
3: the line.
1: And I think Aaron Levy said it best. If you can't stomach a downrod, you're not ready to become a public company CEO because that's a daily occurrence there. And with that, maybe we can end the episode for today. Steve, Jamin, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation.